I'm very happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Mark Lacey. Mark Lacey opened the New York Times Phoenix Bureau in the summer of 2010. As Phoenix Bureau Chief, he covers the immigration debate, border issues, and other issues in Arizona and throughout the Southwest United States. From 2006 to 2010, he was the Times Mexico Bureau Chief covering Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. And from 2001 to 2006, he traveled extensively throughout Africa as the paper's Nairobi Bureau Chief. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Mark Lacey. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming today. I don't know if you have noticed, but Arizona has been in the news a whole lot lately. <laughs> it really has. And that's one of the reasons why we're here today. I work for the New York Times, and the Times decided about a year ago to open a Phoenix bureau. Um, and I'm the first ever Phoenix bureau chief. And, and one of the reasons why they did that is that um, we were sending reporters into Arizona all the time, and so we decided why not have someone based here. Um, one of the, um, when I first met with my editor and he was pitching this new assignment, he said to me, Arizona is hot. Um, and it was, uh, we, we, were, we were meeting in uh, Arizona at the time, it was July, and, but he, wasn't, he was not talking about the temperature, he, he was talking about the fact that, that news is breaking here left and right all the time, um, and we're going to be talking about that with some fascinating uh, people. So let me introduce the panel, um, and then we're, we're going to have a great discussion, and we want to hear from you a little bit later. Um, Jennifer Steen, who's sitting here to my left, um, is assistant professor of political science at Arizona State University and whose work focuses on the electoral process. She uh, has also been on the faculty at Boston College and Yale University and is a former political consultant who previously worked for candidates in local, state, and federal elections. She was also active in party politics and served as a county precinct captain, national convention delegate, and member of the Electoral College. Um, next to Jennifer is Tom Zollner. He's a, oh, I'm, I apologize, my, my notes are a little garbage. We, we, we all look alike, it's okay. <laughs> next, next to Jennifer is Art Hamilton, a Arizona Phoenix institution. Um, he founded public relations firm the Art Hamilton Group in 2008 after serving 26 years in the Arizona House of Representatives with 18 consecutive years as the Democratic leader in the Arizona House. In 2008, the Arizona Republic named him one of the 10 best modern legislators in Arizona history. He was the first African-American and only Arizonan to be elected president of the National Conference of State Legislatures, which represents all 50 state legislatures in their dealings with the federal government. He continues to serve on their foundation on state legislatures. Thank you. And next to Art is Tom Zollner. He is a fifth generation Arizonan. Uh, he puts many of us to shame in that regard. Um, he, he's worked as a field organizer and speechwriter for Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. He was a reporter for many newspapers, including the Arizona Republic, and is the author of The Heartless Stone, A Journey Through the World of Diamonds, Deceit, and Desire, and Uranium, War, Energy, and the Rock That Shaped the World. More directly related to tonight's discussion, his new book, A Safeway in Arizona, What Gabrielle Gifford's Shooting Tells Us About the Grand Canyon State and Life in America, will be published in December. I got an advanced copy, just read it, and you'll want to read it too. So these are our panelists. Please welcome them. I wanted to tell you, um, I got onto the New York Times computer system this afternoon, and I checked, I did a little research, and I found out that Arizona has been mentioned uh, in 69 front page stories um, in the last year. Um, 69 front page stories have mentioned Arizona. Um, that's more than Florida, 
That's more than Ohio, more than Illinois. Um, Arizona still lags behind, well behind New York, but we are the New York Times. Um, lags behind California, but we have 10 to 15 times as many reporters in that state than we do here. So, so Arizona has been um, in the news a whole lot. If you watch uh, Fox News, it sometimes appears that the governor has her own show. She's on, she's on with Greta Van Susteren pretty often. She, she's a regular there. Um, not all of these articles have delved into politics. Um, there, there are all sorts of uh, ways in which Arizona finds its way into the news. Um, remember the um, head of the M a IMF, uh, Dominique uh, Strauss-Kahn? Um, that case had an Arizona connection. The woman who accused him of sexual assault was in touch with her boyfriend who was in prison in Arizona, so that, that counted in my tally. Um, but, but a lot of the articles uh, were about illegal immigration. They were about the shooting down in Tucson. They were about um, Arizona politics. Um, Arizona, um, for reasons that we're going to discuss tonight, finds its way, I, I think enjoys in a lot of ways, um, becoming the center of the conversation uh, nationally. So, so I think what we're going to do to start is ask each of the panelists to tell us a little bit about their connection to the state, first of all, um, how long they've, they've been here, um, and then to, to, to start to get at this question of, is Arizona the front line of American politics? But, but first of all, let's start with uh, Jennifer to my left. How long have you been here in Arizona? What, what um, drew you here? And what do your friends and family members outside of the, um, the borders of this state uh, think about your decision to come here? They think we're crazy. Um, <clears throat> we don't think we're crazy. I've been here for just over a year. We arrived in the, in the dead of summer 2010 end of July, uh, such a wonderful time to move to Phoenix, Arizona. And we came for, surprisingly given the economy, we came for professional opportunities. My husband and I both had wonderful opportunities. Um, and, uh, and I was excited to come to ASU and join the faculty here. So it's been about a year. Um, as we, are, we came, I'm from Connecticut. We've been in Connecticut for 10 years. So I went from a solid blue state to a pretty solid red state. And um, you know, most of my friends in the academic world in Connecticut are <laughs> pretty solidly blue. And um, I can't tell you how many times people would wittily crack, oh, you're moving to Arizona, don't forget your papers. This was, you know, we heard it over and over and over again. Um, and so you know, people thought it was an, it was an odd choice, but um, we, we were excited about the, uh, the opportunity that presented itself. I'm from the West, and I'd spent time in Arizona before. I had more of a family connection uh, in northern Arizona. And so this was not like coming to a strange land for me. It was, it was very comfortable to come back to the West, um, but certainly quite a contrast to Connecticut. Great, great. Art? I, um, I checked my birth certificate uh, this morning, and <laughs> <laughs> I got here 63 years ago, courtesy of my mom and dad, uh, born here. Uh, dad came after the war, and uh, he and mom met and decided they wanted to start a family. Nine children later, there are a whole parcel of us here. Uh, I love the state. Uh, don't always understand what's going on here, and sometimes what I do understand bothers me. But I love being here, and one of the joys of uh, being a, a, re a recovering Arizona politician <laughs> is that I get to travel a lot in terms of my, my old life as being a member of the the National Conference of State Legislatures. I suspect the ultimate uh, irony, uh, compliment, or affront, Mark, was when a good friend of mine who is the current speaker, or just past speaker, of the Mississippi House of, State House of Representatives told me he was glad that we were in the union because he made them feel better about Mississippi. <laughs> and so uh, we, uh, we've got some, we got some splaining to do. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, Tom, a fifth generation Arizona, tell us. Yeah, I, I'm gonna steal a line here from uh, Edward Abbey, who had said that leaving Arizona is easy. I've done it five times. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, uh, coming back to Arizona is something of a repeating pattern. I, I left when I was 18, um, uh, 
glad to see it in the rearview mirror in many ways. This is more about 18 years old talking than Arizona talking. But uh, I came back to uh, work for the Arizona Republic, which was a great privilege. And uh, I also came back to, uh, to help Gabby uh, win her uh, 2006 and 2010 campaigns, which was, which was also a privilege. But uh, my relationship with the state has been, uh, has been long and, and complicated. Um, I, I love it for its, uh, for its natural beauties. I love it for the special people here. Uh, I love it for what it wants to be. Um, we have deep problems in Arizona, however, and we, we, we can't ignore them. Great, great. I was at a, a debate recently uh, between Russell Pierce, the, uh, the um, president of the state senate here, and his uh, recall opponent, Jerry Lewis. Um, and Russell Pierce said at this debate that he thought Arizona was in front of the parade, um, that the rest of the country, the rest of the states of the union were following um, Arizona. And he was speaking of uh, immigration um, primarily. But I'm going to go down uh, and ask the panel what they think about that. Um, it, 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 is, it is certainly true that since the passage of, of 1070, the immigration legislation here, Arizona's legislation has been bogged down in the courts, but a number of states have followed Arizona. And, and I'm going to ask each of the panelists to give their view on whether Arizona is a national trendsetter um, on immigration and on other issues. So, so Jennifer, um, do you want to take a... Well, I think, you, I think you just answered the question by talking about the number of states that have actually been following Arizona's model, although not all of them. There's the obvious contrast with Utah, which pretty much went the, the other direction. It makes sense that uh, w w whether you agree with 1070 or, or not, it makes sense that Arizona would be at the forefront of immigration policy because of the, demo the demographics of the state. And um, we're, we already have a non-white majority here. The rest of the country will get there, or the country as a whole will get there around um, 2040 or so. And so, you know, in that sense, we are in the, in the vanguard of dealing with the um, challenges that face that sort of society. And are people following um, Arizona it is, uh, are on the immigration issue? Do you have a sense that, that uh, Arizona is the model for a lot of other states? I think that, well, in a sense it's a model because it, we have made the first strike. And so other states, other legislatures would be um, sort of crazy not to look at what transpired in Arizona, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and, you know, use that as they, as they define their own proposals, whether they, you know, hew exactly to 1070 or, or the ways in which they deviate from it. Um, they can look to our experience here and see what was the fallout, you know, they can watch the, the litigation unfold and, and see how that goes. And so, you know, I think we are naturally a model from having kind of blaze the trail. And I don't mean... I, I don't mean to, um, I don't mean the perhaps positive connotations that go with that language, but, you know, clearly we have set a standard and, and offered some lessons for other states. Great. Are, are we um, here in Arizona um, leading the parade? I think we are. I think we are, we are marching smartly into the 18th century, and, and the rest of the country has chosen to follow. Uh, we, in many ways, we are, we are unique. We are, we are a border state. Uh, we, we, the problems of immigration are evident to here. Maybe before the rest of the country, we have the, the current uh, Secretary of Homeland Security is the former governor of this state. I mean, we are deeply steeped in the whole issues uh, of immigration. And, and frankly, we are a state which for most of my life uh, encouraged people to come here from south of our border to help us with our, with our agriculture and other things. And, and as the economy went south and as people really began to become afraid and fearful and began to find the need to find somebody to blame for their troubles. We were first, I think we as a state were first to kind of help them by giving them somebody to blame and to hold accountable for their difficulties. I, I think uh, with all due respect, we, we've mastered in some ways uh, becoming a place which practices the politics of subtraction and division and not addition and multiplication. And I think, frankly, that is a model which, while I, I am saddened by it, I think is one that the rest of the country, for at least the short term, has gravitated toward. I, I believe Art's correct, and, and particularly the, the, the history of this 
it's deeply ingrained in the state's heritage and certainly in its economy to encourage Mexican labor to come here. And it has been that way since territorial days. And uh, it's easy to pretend that this is not a part, a strong part of the lifeblood of this state economically. Uh, a University of Arizona study uh, indicates that we get far more than is, than is taken away from us. Um, I think it's no coincidence that SB 1070 uh, came to the fore just as the housing market, the, the real estate industrial complex, as, as John Talton likes to call it, uh, started to go south and um, it, became, it became an easy scapegoat. And as to are we a vanguard for the rest of the country in this, I believe that we are. Uh, we have a, a nation of changing demographics, and here in Arizona we see this in very stark relief. We have what demographers call uh, gray versus brown. We have, we have a younger Latino population and an aging Anglo population. Um, the numbers from uh, the Brookings Institute indicate, and actually this comes via the original source of the U.S. Census, as a matter of fact, that um, in my hometown of Tucson, 60%, uh, 60% of the people under the age of 18 are, are Latino. And among senior citizens, those 65 and above, that's 80% Anglo. So you typically, you, what you have are people with, groups of people with two very different sets of life priorities, not a lot of, familiar, not a lot of familiarity with each other, and uh, that's a toxic mix. Jennifer, did you want to say anything more about who are who who, who makes up the state and what what uh, how important it, is that? In no, I'm just struck by how we're all doing research from the same sources. I've got that census data right here in my lab that Tom just referred to, and um, and I have some nice statistics from the New York Times coverage of Arizona as well. So, <laughs> great minds think alike, right, guys? I want. I've spent a lot of time um, since I've been here writing about uh, guns and and guns are allowed in this state in all sorts of places where they wouldn't be allowed back in New York, where I'm from. Um, you can carry guns into bars here, you can carry guns into government buildings. I don't believe any of the panelists here are packing, but some of you in the audience may be. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a very unique uh, uh, view towards firearms here compared to uh, New York and some places on the East Coast, some other parts of the country. And I'm interested, and I'm, I'm going to start with, with Tom because of the, the book he just wrote that is really about a, a very notorious shooting, um, to talk a little bit about this state's views on firearms um, and what that says about Arizona, whether, whether um, Arizona's views toward firearms may be spreading across the country. I'll tell you one story. When I first arrived, um, I was alarmed to see um, guns on people's hips everywhere I went. Um, and one day I was talking to a bank teller who had moved here from New York, and he told me that a man walked into the Bank of America in, in Phoenix and he had a gun on his hip. The man pushed the panic button. Um, he, he thought the man was robbing the bank, but he was not. He was just uh, conducting uh, bank business, but you can carry a gun into a bank in, in Arizona. So, so Tom, tell, tell, tell us, um, in, in looking into the Gifford shooting, what was your view of, of how the state's attitude toward weapons had anything to do with that incident? Yeah, the, the person in that uh, accused of the shooting, Jared Loeffner, uh, was able to buy a gun very easily. Um, Arizona is not unique in this way. You can do this in uh, most states in the union. Um, but in Arizona, there's uh, a particularly strong view of uh, guns entangled with this idea of liberty and of this idea of independence from the federal government, which uh, is a concept taken very seriously in state politics. Um, our brand of, I think it's facile to call it conservatism, but you know, our, our brand of, of, of looking at the rest of the world tends to be uh, heavily flavored with a libertarian streak. You know, don't, don't touch my property, let's leave each other alone. Um, it's, it's sort of a, a, you know, a philosophy entangled with who we are as the United States, but it tends to reinforce, I think, some of the more um, solitary aspects of our nature. And 
that um, was also, I, I think, a, a, a striking theme with what happened to, to Gabrielle Giffords, the social disconnection, the role that, that simple loneliness played in, in this young man's life, the fact that he could uh, essentially go mad, slowly mad in, in public for uh, up to four years, and then at the very end, uh, walk into the sportsman's warehouse off of Ina Road and uh, with very little fuss, muss, or bother, purchase a firearm. Art, um, how did the gun issue play in your years in the legislature? Well, one of the things that's, that's changed, I mean, we've always had guns. I mean, I, I grew up in, in Arizona, and people had guns in their hips from the time I was a little boy, and I was never quite comfortable with it, but, you know, as long as it was showing, uh, you could pack and wear your gun if you weren't a felon or any of that. But what changed was when people began pushing the idea in part of, of concealed weapons, that there was absolutely to be no limit on a person's right to, to bear arms, to to hide your gun, to what have you. And the thing that fundamentally changed was, in my misspent youth in the legislature, one of the bars on people excessively pushing this whole notion of guns was the fact that the police would always come in and say, oh, wait, 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 that's too far. At this point, you jeopardize the welfare of the men and women in blue, and therefore that ought not be done. We actually continued down this road so far as the police objected and people rolled right by them. Uh, the police made it very clear that they thought we had in fact exceeded those rules and regulations, those allowances that made police officers unsafe. And even that was not enough to stop this kind of roll toward absolute freedom. Uh, I think what really happened, at least in part, was that because of our very... Uh, open notions about guns historically, and because of the, the whole notions of referendum and initiative and taking things to the folks, we really kind of gotten away from ourselves. And we really became a place where experimentation in terms of the limits of what could be sold. If you wanted to experiment, this was a great place to do it. Put it on the ballot, let's see if it sails. And, and, and I think that has changed dramatically from simply being a place where people pack heat on their hip and everybody can see it to a place where everybody in this building may be packing and nobody knows it. Well, I want to ask, um, you know, Tom, when we were talking beforehand, mentioned that he lived in Wyoming, and, and I've spent time in Idaho. Uh, to me, the, the, um, the gun culture here doesn't actually seem that unique to the state of Arizona. It seems like a Western phenomenon. It's something that I experienced in my years, uh, you know, in the Intermountain West in, in you know, several states. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I'm a newcomer here, though, so I'm willing to be educated. Do you, do you think it's unique here compared to the other Western states that have the same, uh, have a similar heritage of, you know, individualism and uh, emphasizing liberty and, um, you know, having strong sportsman traditions? How, how is Arizona different? In that sense, you know, we are congruous. And I, I want to play off something Art said here for a second, mm -hmm. which was experimentation. You know, um, we, we hear... Um, are one of the great sort of labs for, um, for, the, for these ideas, which, again, is a wonderful thing in the American character. But in Arizona, it plays out in a certain way. I, I said earlier, a toxic mix between uh, Anglos and, and, and older Anglos and younger Latinos. And what I think I want to clarify is that, that that's a recipe for uh, political confrontation that just doesn't need to be this way. Um, SB 1070, why did it pass in Arizona? of all the southwestern states, of the four border states, why, why us? And, and I'm convinced that uh, this never would have um, gotten really past second or third base in Sacramento, in Santa Fe, or in Austin, because those other capitals have uh, more mature political structures, places where uh, Latinos have much greater political power, and where the, the, the political culture of the state is um, not as uh, open to experimentation and uh, this vast influx of newcomers that we have in Arizona. It's easy to get elected office in Arizona, having lived here a very short time. Um, incidentally, one of the stories that got on the front page of the New York Times was how Arizona is also a leader in the knife rights movement. And you can carry a knife's knives with you as well. There are very few limits on the size of the knife, and, and local municipalities cannot restrict 
knives. It is only the state legislature. And there was concern about um, bayonets and, and um, machetes and um, other sorts of knives being banned one place and allowed another place. So now there's no uh, restrictions on knives either. So Arizona's also a leader in that regard. Um, I, I thought it would be interesting for, for us to talk a little <coughs> bit about the politicians um, in, the, in the state. Who, who are the leaders of the state? And we're going to start with, we're going to talk to Art about this. Um, there, there are, um, the, from my perspective, a lot of the leaders here enjoy thumbing their nose at the federal government. They take great pleasure, particularly with President Obama in office, but I think in general there's this sense um, that they they um, they view the the federal government as a impediment to their to their freedom, um, and so whether it's uh, challenging the U.S. Constitution when it comes to birthright citizenship, or taking on um, the health care reform that passed in the Congress. Um, you, you have a lot of challenges, court cases coming out of Arizona. Um, w there's a, there's a, a, a sheriff. What other part of the country um, can you, do you know the name of the county sheriff? Um, Hazard County, Alabama, Roscoe P. Coltrane. Okay, that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, uh, Jan Brewer is a very well-known uh, governor. Uh, Russell Pierce, an extremely well-known um, state senate president. The, the leaders of this state um, have become known across the country. I'm going to ask Art to sort of um, psychoanalyze, if he could, who, who, um, who are the, the leaders of Arizona today? Um, are they, and does, does he view them as as being representative of the, the majority sentiment in the United States today? Well, probably I would suggest psycho without the analyzing, but, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I think clearly it would be, uh, it would be Russell Pierce and, and Joe Arpaio. And, and that is not to, to minimize Jan Brewer, but if you think about it, many of the people who've come to Arizona, particularly in this presidential season, if they went to see the governor, they went to see, in many, most cases, third. I mean, the first place they wanted to go was to see Sheriff Joe and see if they could get a pair of those pink undies that he has everybody wearing in a, in a bologna sandwich. And, of course, uh, Ms. Bachman then wanted to go see Russell Pierce because he's the father of 1070. And, and that's why I'm saying people are really trying to tap in uh, when they come to Arizona to that very ugly, and I, ugly to me, but that very negative, divided sentiment that seems to be so prevalent in the country. And I don't, you know, I, I'm not really big tonight into the R&D stuff, but there just seems to be folks who are frightened and anti. And the one thing I learned in my political life was that the people who are happy and, 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 and pleased may or may not vote. The people who are angry and frightened, they are coming. And that is that sentiment that seems rampant right now in, in the country certainly alive and well in Arizona. And I think in many ways, uh, as I said earlier, I think with all due respect, the sheriff, probably, uh, probably Russell Pierce, Senator Pierce, with all due respect, have really specialized in telling people you have every right to be afraid, and those are the people who are responsible for your fear. And I think people across the country are running for higher office wanting to tap into that. I think in many ways, uh, Governor Brewer, let me, let me say this, and I, I served with Governor Brewer when she was in the state Senate. I, I, I like Jan. I don't think I voted for her, but, but I like her fine. Um, <laughs> but, but, but in many ways, she was reluctant to, to, to sign 1070 and was advised against it. But she was convinced by her advisors that if, in fact, she didn't sign it or go along with it, she could never get the nomination because people forget at the time she made that judgment, she was running third or fourth in the polls in her own party primary. Once she signed 1070, she had a free e-ticket ride in Disneyland back to the governor's office. And so she became a celebrity and found new life with the New York Times. 
Thank you, thank you, Art. Tom, um, you, you are a, a friend of Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. You've known her for a long time. You've worked on her campaigns. Does she, um, is she in any way a typical um, Arizona politician? A typical Arizona politician. Uh, wow, uh, that's uh, there are there are many kinds of, uh, of, of political leaders in Arizona. But I'll, I'll say this: you know, I was a, a journalist for for ten years, a, a daily newspaper reporter, and it is absolute anathema to uh, uh, give any indication of your political leanings. You know, you don't give money to candidates. You certainly don't go work for them in any capacity. And uh, I, I don't think I would have done what I did after I left newspapers to actually display any kind of a bias for, for anyone except for someone like Gabby, who um, never really had a bad thing to say uh, about people she disagreed with. And the way she thought about the, the problems in the state was, was so uh, thoughtful, so uh, wonderfully pragmatic. Uh, she knew how to get things done. and. She did so in a, in a way that, uh, that sought to, uh, to bridge divides rather than exploit them. So I, I thought enough of that to actually take for me, what, which was a huge psychological step, which was to actually um, support a political candidate and, in fact, work for this political candidate. She, she won by a very small margin um, a couple of years ago against a, a virtually unknown candidate. Is she um, in sync with uh, the voters in her district? Is she... What do you think? Well, uh, part of the reason why I felt so strongly motivated to to write a book about this was because I was I, I almost did not recognize my hometown in 2010. I, I came back there to, uh, to to once again work for Gabby, and the the there was just something so nasty in the oxygen, something that I really had not recognized before. And I've been watching Arizona politics a long time. I, I take a great fascination with it. And something just felt, I, I can only say creepy about it, the way that she was so personally vilified, um, the, the, the way that so much of Tucson's discontent seemed to be aimed in her direction. And, you know, she has a tremendous amount of sang -freud. I asked her, you know, how does this feel to sort of see your, your, your name out there in such a way and your face, you know, done up in this sort of villainous way? And, and she, she sort of shrugged it off like, ah doesn't bother me. This is just, you know, this is what, what happens. And um, I, I'm convinced that the, the, the atmosphere in Arizona um, the, in the eight weeks leading up to the shooting did in fact play a role. I, I, I think that social context plays uh, a part in how we act. And this extends even to the seriously mentally ill, as Jared Loeffner was. So uh, I never bought into this argument that this was the lone act of a deranged gunman. I think this did not happen in a vacuum. And may I make a quick point? One of the things that I think has helps tell us where we are in Arizona is that one of the people who is now viewed as perhaps not conservative enough to really be viewed any longer as a real conservative is Barry Goldwater. We have gotten so incredibly... I think askew that people like Barry Goldwater is now viewed as perhaps maybe he had a, a hidden liberal gene that nobody knew about. And, and I, I had occasion to serve with, with Sandra O'Connor. I was, I, was, I was honored to go to the, to the United States Senate at her confirmation and speak for, for Justice O'Connor. And, and, and many people thought I was being ugly because clearly she was a, to, the, to the right and we didn't need her on the Supreme Court. And yet people now, many of the folks who are the leaders here, view her as some kind of liberal, crazy person because Justice O'Connor has come back to Arizona trying to help create an Arizona where civility and comity and fairness and just good old common sense is still allowed in the political arena. It says, I think, a good deal, not about what people really viewed historically as conservatives, but what people now call conservative which I don't think is really conservative at all. I want to ask Art something based on your long experience in the legislature. So a lot of what you of what you just mentioned, the incivility, um, and what we've been talking about, the sort of the porousness of the political system, so that someone can move here and run for office, and um, and extreme uh, positions can really take hold. It seems to me that 
part of the responsibility for that lies in the political institutions that we have here. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, if you feel like the, um, the dawn of the term limits age has anything to do with it. You know, we now have a state legislature that cycles through. People don't have the kind of long career that you had. And so the members of the bodies themselves don't particularly value that, they don't place value on governmental institutions the way that careerists formally would have. Is there anything to that? One of my, one of my heroes is the late Morris Udall, former congressman of Arizona. And Mo once said about the United States Congress, some of the worst things and he told me I should never attribute this to him, but he said it. <laughs> Oops. Some of the worst things that, that ever happened in the Congress happened in the name of, of, of reform. I, I will tell you that, that, that term limits have been an, an unmitigated failure in this state because, frankly, the, the memory, the institutional memory that kept certain things at bay is now gone. And people come with eight years to make a name and move on to something else, and therefore the people who take care of the institution really are no longer there. When I served in the house for 26 years, it was my house. And you didn't come to my house and bring all that garbage in. You kept the garbage outside. There's nobody there now handling the folks who bring the garbage in. The other thing that I think has changed is, is we did something which I greatly support, and, and that's public finance. But we did it without fully understanding some of the negative effects of public finance because it's not tied to parties or tied to some organizational institution, anybody who comes in and can get a few people to sign $5 can now run. So that people come in and they're free to run, separate and apart from the institutions that used to help kind of govern conduct, parties, precinct committee organizations, county organizations. People now come in playing Lone Ranger. And, and so if you can get somebody like, with all due respect to my good friend Russell Pierce, uh, who has an organization to go out and get some of those signatures for you, you're out there and you can come here and if you meet the, rec the, the, the two or three year requirement, you're free to run. And frankly, while I do believe that, that, that there is a place for public financing, I, I do believe it is it has certainly had to some degree an unexpected negative effect, but I think term limits is, is even though I'm told I was the poster child for term limits, it's been an unmitigated failure. Uh, Jennifer, as you know, the Supreme Court struck down mm -hmm. um, um, Arizona's campaign finance system in a recent decision. Matching funds. Um, do you what what do you what do you think about whether um, Arizona is an innovator when it comes to matching funds, campaign finance? What well, did that decision so, say about the state? So, uh, Arizona was one of the early adopters of the so-called clean elections program at the state level. Uh, Vermont was first, but Arizona was close on their heels. And so, um, so yeah, we, uh, Arizona was an innovator. And you know, as I was saying about the immigration law earlier, uh, there weren't a whole lot of models in effect, and they wouldn't listen to us geeks in the political science world who were saying, "Now you need to think carefully about." what this is going to entail. Um, so, uh, you know, later, later adopting states have been able to see some of the, um, some of the negative consequences, sort of the, the too much democracy that Art was, was implying, where there's no, um, there's no screening process, there's no quality control when it's so easy to qualify for public funding. But, um, but yeah, so Arizona was, was at the forefront of that. Of course, it, it, you know, I'm sure everyone here knows it's because we have direct democracy here, and this was alluded to earlier, you know, the, there are all kinds of institutions um, that just don't get adopted in places where the people don't get to, to try them out, but they, um, they often have some fairly negative consequences. I know you have spent a lot of time uh, fo focusing your attention on redistricting a process mm -hmm. that's going on in Arizona. Um, this has been very divisive in this state. Is, where, is, where is Arizona um, compared to uh, the rest of the nation when it comes to redrawing its maps? And, and what have those meetings been like that you've been in? The meetings have been fascinating. Arizona is, um, is at the back of the pack. So <laughs> we've been, we're talking about what leaders we are in so many respects, but in uh, redistricting we are very behind schedule compared to the other, to pretty much every other state. Um, and, uh, and hopefully we'll actually get a map approved in time to have our elections next cycle. But um, the, the meetings have been fascinating. The outpouring of um, 
we'll call it passion, from citizens who, um, who are concerned that the process is being hijacked by nefarious interests um, it has been really striking. And I've spent a lot of time at these meetings and I've talked to a lot of the citizens who've come out, uh, especially the citizens who come to every meeting um, to be watchdogs. And, um, and there's no doubt that these are very sincere individuals who are concerned about um, the, they're concerned about the state. They're concerned that the redistricting is going in a terrible direction, you know, by their standards, um, that it will have awful consequences for for uh, for the next ten years. Um, I don't happen to agree with that assessment, but um, you know, but I'm really amazed by the the degree to which these folks have been motivated to to be involved. Um, and as I said, I think passion is probably, in some cases, is a is a polite way of describing. The tone. Arizona's run into trouble with the Justice Department mm -hmm. in the past. Is it going to happen again this year? What's They're trying sense? really. So, so I think that one reason why it's taking so long is that they really, really want to get so-called pre-clearance, which is where the Department of Justice looks at your map and says, "Okay, you're not rolling things back for our minority communities." So. Yes, you may <laughs> go ahead with this map. Um, the the five redistricting commissioners want to achieve preclearance. They don't want it to. They don't want to have things get held up any further. So, um, you know, I think they're making good faith efforts, and they have um, qualified people advising them. So, um, but it, it's really hard to know what the Department of Justice will do. Every case is different. It's different from year to year. You can't really look at what happened 10 years ago to see if there are any clues, any lessons that will um, you know, prevent uh, another DOJ objection. But um, I think they have a high likelihood of, of getting the map pre-cleared. Because um, in, in some sense, they may have been kind of bending too, bending too far over backwards to make sure that they get that DOJ clearance. Mm -hmm. One of the things that people don't know about Arizona, people who live outside, um, is they, they think of Arizona as a place where art is the only uh, Democrat in the whole state, and, and uh, it, it's just a Republican-dominated state up and down. Really, it's roughly um, one-third independent, one-third um, Republican, one-third Democrat, with the Republicans having a slight advantage. Is that right, Art? Is there, do you think there's a misconception that everybody in this state, uh, you and a few other people um, aside, are Republicans? Well, I, I think there's, it's a misconception, I think, in, in part because uh, the Democrats have in, in been so unsuccessful of late, but the reality is uh, the fastest-growing group right now are not Republicans nor Democrats, but independents. But yeah, I think this state is a state that is clearly viable in terms of being competitive. You know, Janet Napolitano was our governor. Bruce Babbitt was our governor. Dennis DeConcini served as a United States senator. Uh, historically, we were from statehood through 1960s, a democratic state. So I think we really can, in fact, be competitive. But it, it, one of the things that, that interests me in terms of reapportionment is, in fact, the whole idea of competitiveness. One of the real problems we've had historically is you've got these many seats or, or, or districts are Republican, these are Democrats, and they're like three or four we can fight over. If I had my druthers, I'd make all 30 of them competitive because I think not only does it have the opportunity to give us more, a better blend of R's and D's or independents, but I think it would tend to moderate the Republicans and the Democrats and force people to the middle to try to appeal to folks who live in the middle who tend not to be right-wing R's or left-wing D's. They just want a government that kind of governs and functions. Tom, Tom, let me go to you. You spent a lot of time knocking on doors during a campaign. It, tell us what you found about what, what um, Arizonans believe where they are alive politically. Well, um, a g really a good point has been made here about the rise of independence, which um, it, it is uh, the most influential political party in Arizona without even being a party. And uh, perversely, I think it's made Arizona even less independent. Um, the, the numbers right now are, are 36 are 30% uh, Democrat and 31% independent, 31% and rising. And the effect of this has been that the primary elections um, within the 30 districts uh, in the state legislature um, are just completely correct. Two, maybe three of them are competitive in a good year. Uh, the rest, what you have, because so many people have bled out of their political parties, you have candidates who find it advantageous to play to the really hardcore base in both these parties. And so you get the people who are really motivated to vote, and they do so for 
frankly, quite emotional reasons, uh, fear being a, a, a large one. Um, this, I don't mean to impugn one side or the other. This happens in both Republican and Democratic districts. So this is, I think, a, a big part of the reason why uh, state government tends to attract those uh, for whom getting along with the other side is not a priority because it was not their path to real. It was not their path to the seat, and it's not what's going to keep them in that seat. Something, though, that is a really well-kept secret about independence is that most of them are closet partisans. That's just incontrovertible if you look at data, research, survey research, or even election results. Um, the overwhelming majority of people who reject the party labels and so register as independents, um, they are still, most of them, very loyal to one party or the other when they go to the, to the voting booth. So the main difference comes into primary participation, right? Once you reject the party label, then you are not automatically able to participate in that party's primary anymore. Um, and so you, you do get that polarization um, in the primary electorate and you have more, uh, more extreme nominees, presumably on both sides. Um, but those independents, are still, for the most part, not all of them, they're not swing voters. Most of them are reliable Republicans or reliable Democrats. Great. Let's thank Jennifer, Art, and Tom for the great discussion. My name is Jerry Gettinger, and I've been in uh, Arizona since 1990. I retired here from California, and I was born and raised on a farm in Texas. I also worked on Wall Street, but don't tell anybody that. <laughs> I suggest that we're not in the forefront of politics, that because of the small population that Arizona has, we've been hijacked by the radical right. And they have sold us a bill of goods thinking that we are in the forefront, when in fact we're really uh, being taken for granted by, uh, by, is it a question? Oh, is it, I'm sorry, is it a question? Do you, do you agree? <laughs> Thank you very much. Does anyone on the panel want to take a... You know, uh, <laughs> I, I really think that uh, the, 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 the problems we face here, I think, really transcend politics. You know, um, this gets... It's easy to sort of see this as a, as a left-right thing. I think there are deeper things going on. Um, I think that we've, we have an economy that was founded for so many years, uh, not on a, on a manufacturing base, but essentially on a lifestyle base. It was uh, Arizona's plan, essentially, to uh, push the, the, the boundaries of the urbanized area further and further out. Uh, this was on an assumption of ever-rising home prices, on uh, cheap gasoline, um, on there being uh, an endless supply of other uh, Americans willing to come out here and reinvent themselves in this place. And, you know, uh, I think we, uh, we got schooled hard in, in, in 2008. Um, our sort of real estate industrial complex broke down. And uh, when that happened, you saw uh, an enormous outpouring of, uh, of, of emotion and fear. I have a question on your right. Hi, my name's Steve Muratori. I write the Arizona Eagle Tarion. You can find that online. Uh, but my question is, uh, Mr. Hamilton, you ta we talked about the NCSL, National Conference of State Legislatures, but there's another group that many of our state lawmakers belong to, and uh, I'd like to get uh, some uh, discussion about the influence of ALEC on Arizona's public policy. The American Legislative Exchange Committee. Yes, sir. ALEC was created uh, in large part by uh, the business interest who felt like they didn't have enough say at the table with NCSL because NCSL is, while we allow business folks to come in and speak to committees, they're not allowed to vote or have a say in the policies of the conference. That is reserved only for legislators and legislative staff. And so ALEC was created to give the folks who felt they didn't have enough, uh, say, uh, place at the table. Uh, clearly, they have a, a more conservative slant than, than uh, NCSL, though NCSL is by far not a liberal organization. But more importantly, uh, they've been able, through ALEC, to get their policies 
specifically in front of legislative bodies. And I know in part 1070 uh, was written in an ALEC uh, meeting and in, far, in part by the folks who run the, uh, the uh, corporation for uh, 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 the folks who do the jails. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they so, so ALEC is in fact uh, really the business communities and I'm not knocking the business community, but many of the folks, their response to, uh, to not feeling as if uh, what they wanted was being produced by NCSL. And while I'm, let me at least give you my commercial, I can do that. Uh, the reason why I, say I, I feel so strong about NCSL is because again, we, ought, we, we, we rotate each year. Republican, Democrat, by law, it has to be. We rotate by region. And anything that's passed as policy of the conference has to be approved by three-fourths of the states. So it, is, it has the tendency to kind of push us to the middle and make us think things through. And that's why I think NCSL, for my money, is a better organization. ALEC, I'm sure, has its purposes. I'm just not quite sure what they are. We have, we have another question over here to your left. Uh, hello, I'm Jack Anderson, native but recently returned after 23 years in California. I have two related questions, both to the increased enforcement of the immigration laws. Firstly, is there specific data that we can see and look at so far that might indicate economic impact? I can imagine making it harder to find farm labor could mean farmers have to pay more to the labor, could mean the prices of those go up, could mean that a head of lettuce in Yuma is now more expensive than one in El Centro. Secondly, going to your brown versus gray idea, I have a 96-year-old grandmother who needs a lot of care, many times per day. And I see the population of Arizona as the baby boomers become 70 and 80 and 90 years old, really needing a lot of care. And I, the only place I can see that coming from is increased immigration, if there's any other source. Uh, yeah, to, to the economic data, uh, real quick, here's some numbers. This comes okay. from a University of Arizona study by uh, an economist named Judith Gans, who uh, sought to examine this question, you know, uh, are illegal immigrants a drain on the state's budget, as, as many have said? Uh, she uh, indicated that it's actually a net positive economic effect. Uh, they purchase $4.41 billion worth of goods. Uh, they pay $318 million worth of taxes to the state, this in the form of sales taxes. Uh, a total economic output of $28.9 billion. This is the, the, the labor that they provide. Um, meanwhile, there are costs. You know, this, this cannot be glossed over. The, the, the hospitals apparently pay $120 million uh, per year in, in this uh, indigent care that will go to them, uh, unrecon unrecompensated care. And the school system bears uh, $544 million worth of extra costs to uh, educate the children. When you factor it all out, though, uh, this is actually a blessing for Arizona, although it may not seem like it, it is. So, Jack, I think you, that you are also interested in the, did I, you, I didn't interrupt you, okay. No. So that you're also interested um, not just in the um, economic impact of immigration, but the economic impact of 1070 specifically, right? So that it's actually kind of too new for the data to have been generated, and I'm sure that my colleagues in the economics departments and business schools are, you know, ginning that up as we speak. Um, the the only the only study that's come across my desk so far was um, an inquiry into the impact on the travel and tourism industry that suggested that there were um, there were some benefits to 1070. By, uh, you know, among conventioneers who were attracted to it, who wanted to show solidarity, and then of course there were more, um, more costs in terms of business lost um, to uh, organizations, associations that decided they did not want to have their conventions uh, in Arizona right now. So that's the only piece of it that, that I've seen so far. I don't think the GAN study ha has has looked at. Um, change since 1070. Right, I'm the, not the sure political though. effects. Yeah, no. so that, that will, that's a great question. I'm, I'm dying to see it too, but that, that stuff's not out yet. Yeah, another, another thing we don't know yet is how many um, illegal immigrants have left the state 
sense the passage of 10 That's right. We don't know it, but we have clues in the census data. The census projections for the Arizona, for Arizona's population um, that were made before the census was taken on April 1st, 2010, gee, what was going on then, um, were high. And the estimates that have, that have been made since the census suggest that there actually has been uh, quite a decline. Yeah. We'll never know, we, we can't count people who aren't here, so we'll never know exactly, but, but there are real indications that um, there was an outflux, yeah, if you will. Um, anecdotally, there, there, were, there were trucks loaded up with with um, household goods heading down to Nogales. There were trucks headed to states all across the United States. There's no doubt that people were terrified by this legislation and left Arizona in large numbers, but we don't know how many and different numbers are thrown out, but it, it's really unclear how many people have left. Did you write that piece in the magazine? There was a piece in the New York Times Magazine that was- There was one, I yeah. didn't write that. You weren't here yet. Yeah. Have another question on your right. Hi, my name is Pam Weir, and I'm an ASU student in Arizona native. And as you've discussed, the state legislature is very, has been very negative toward the federal government. However, at the same time, we see the state legislature, legislature passing a lot of unfunded mandates and things that are um, creating lots of responsibilities on cities sure. and local governments. And I'm just sort of wondering, um, how are those things reconciled within the state of Arizona with Arizona voters that on the one hand you don't want interference from above but then you're interfering below? Yeah. I, mean, I, I heard uh, Russell Pierce who heads the, the state senate argue recently in this debate about um, the, the state is the, is, is the entity of power in Arizona. Um, the the uh, municipalities, towns, municipalities, cities, they, they are subsections of the state. He views all power as coming from the state legislature, um, and he views that the, the state as, um, as, as being, um, the, the state, in his view, should set policies all across the state and cities and towns should follow those mandates in all sorts of areas. And that's been one of his trademarks in the legislature on all sorts of issues. And then on the, when it comes to the federal government, he, he views the federal government as not doing its job in sealing the border and stopping illegal immigration um, and then interfering with Arizona's freedom when it comes to healthcare reform and, and, and other areas. And so that's, that, that's the philosophy coming from one of the leaders of the, of the legislature. I don't know if anyone they, they, They've always, always maintained that, that, that cities and counties are creatures of the state. Uh, and because they are creatures of the state, under state government, the state has the right to mandate as it will. But they also maintain that the federal government is a creation of the states, that the state got together and created the federal government, and therefore the federal government ought not, ought not in fact, be, be, be passing on these mandates. I mean, it, it, is, it is, I think, probably a wonderful philosophy, which in terms of its absolute worth is bogus as, as a $2 bill. <laughs> the, 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 the truth of the matter is, when I was a legislator, and, and, and we, we needed some additional revenue, but we didn't want to pass uh, another tax that could be identified as a state tax. We passed a law that required the counties to impose a tax on county citizens. We required the counties to impose a tax. We then deducted what the county tax raised from our state obligation to the counties. This is called, can you find the P? It is, it seems to me, it seems to me that, that while I do recognize that the state is a sovereign entity, the, the idea that somehow states ought to continue to pass mandates onto cities and counties, while we, ought to, while we, we should continue to ask our, 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 our universities and community colleges and, 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 and schools to educate our children without money, it's like asking folks to make brick without straw and then blaming them because the house falls down. The reality is the state has an obligation to take care of its business. And I will tell you what I said when I was in public office. That means from time to time you raise taxes on the folks you represent. You do it carefully 
and judiciously and understand that you're going to be held responsible for that. But I refuse to let children go to school in buildings that were not safe or without the proper things they needed to be educated because I was afraid to raise taxes. If you think the cost of education is high, consider the cost of ignorance. We have another question on your left. Hi, my name is Catalina Monsalve, and I'm a Latino immigrant. Uh, when I moved to the U.S., I moved to the East Coast and then moved to Arizona in 2002. My feeling then was that the state was very divided. There was this feeling of um, just negativity and ugliness. And that feeling has actually become a reality today. Is there any hope for unity? And if so, are there any organizations or any key players that are actually working towards that? Does anyone want to? Uh, predicts the future, Art? There are tons of organizations, I think, that are really trying to deal with those issues. I'm not sure any of us are having a great deal of success, but, but I think, again, as I really do believe as we get better as a country and our economy, as we, as we begin to see some economic rebound, I think the ability of people to deal in a more tactful, hopefully thoughtful way will, will increase. I believe it is it is Frederick Douglass, and I'm misquoting him a little bit, but Frederick Douglass says, tell me the amount of abuse of liberty people will stand, and I will show you the amount of tyranny they will be subject to. I think that's really what we struggle with, is, is we, all of us, have to decide that there is only so much, much less, hopefully, abuse that we will withstand and allow ourselves to take, and if we can agree to that, we will be, I think, a lot more forceful in dealing with the tyrants who simply now make their political bones at the expense of other people. I have another question on your right. Um, my name is Elena Kennedy. I am a master's student at ASU in the Social Justice and Human Rights Program. Several of my classmates are here. Um, but my question was, is that uh, Tent City and many of Arizona's prisons have one of the highest death rates in the country, um, if not the highest. And I was just wondering what you think the national implications of that are and internationally to the state of Arizona and the United States of America. Well, the, the only real uh, uh, rate of, uh, I'm going to use a word here that I always mispronounce, so uh, bear with me, recidivism. You got yeah, it. You yeah, got it. I, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you got me on a good night here. Um, there was really only one study done uh, on this by, by ASU um, about uh, a year and a half after Sheriff Joe had, had, had set up Tent City, and it showed a reoffense rate of about 62%, which was uh, exactly average. So uh, after that, there were no more studies <laughs> that were allowed in Tent City. And so um, anecdotally, um, this, uh, this really has very, very little peniological benefit. You know, this is uh, purely uh, sort of an attention-getting, a visceral way to sort of, uh, you know, demonstrate his uh, tough-on-crime sort of, sort of nature. But the, the, the stats show that it, it does uh, no good whatsoever. But it goes, you know, Art mentioned his friend from Mississippi saying it makes the rest of us feel better about ourselves every time. Mark writes about Tent City, and it's in the paper, the national paper. It, 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 you know, it gives the rest of the country something to look at and to say, wow, those kooks out in Arizona, look what they're doing. And you know, perhaps uh, it makes their day go a little easier and <laughs> their lives feel a little bit better. But at the end of the day, what, what strikes me is that, that Joe Arpaio, and I'm not picking on Joe because it's real, Joe Arpaio is the sheriff because we elected him mm -hmm. and elected him again elected him again and again. And we elected him again to put people in stripes and put them out on, on, on the chain gangs because we thought that really kind of looked cool. And, and people who wear you know, the pink undies and the fact that we feed people under $1.50 a day. We, as a group, as a, as a state, as a county, cannot blame Joe Pyle for what he has visited upon the state. He serves at our sufferance and continues to serve because we elect him. And whether we want to deal with it and honestly or not, he reflects our values. And if he doesn't, why the hell haven't we replaced him? We have time for one more question. I want to first thank all of our panelists for joining us tonight. I want to thank Smoka for, um, 
for hosting us. And we want to thank C-SPAN as well. They're here recording tonight. This will be rebroadcast on C-SPAN in uh, late November. Um, and all of our panelists will be out at our reception, which will be held in the lobby after the event. Please, please grab a free drink, and you're more than welcome to ask them more questions individually. And now our last question. My name is Catherine Mormon. I've been in Arizona uh, not quite four years. There are lots of national organizations that have strong positions on abortion, guns, uh, immigration, many of the issues we've talked about. To what extent do you think these organizations sort of shop around for a, uh, for a good place to push their agenda, and Arizona is one of them, or to what extent do you believe that some of the things we've discussed are really coming from Arizona citizens themselves? Well, again, my, my, my view of the universe is probably different, but because of our, our, our initiative, uh, a, a lot of folks, when they were pushing initiatives, and because they basically are a Western phenomenon, look for easy places to do initiatives. Arizona is certainly one of those. And, and I think we simply have become one of several states that really have become battlegrounds for trying out new things, if I might call them new things. Uh, I, I think a good deal of, of what is going on is, is, is imported, but frankly, there is a lot of indigenous madness here as well. And, and while I would like to suggest otherwise because I'm a native, I'm afraid a lot of this we, we, we brought on ourselves. The initiatives, true citizen movements are quite rare. And, um, and it, you know, if you look at studies of the sponsors and origins of ballot measures, not just in Arizona, or not Arizona specifically, but in, um, in states with direct democracy, you know, over time, there's just been an increasing trend that a higher and higher percentage of them are top-down, are driven ex in exactly the way you suggest by entrepreneurial organizations. I have to say that, you know, before we castigate them, we've got to realize that this is a, t a tactic that's available to people of all political persuasions. And the example that came to mind is one of my favorite Supreme Court cases, Brown v. Board, which was the result of the NAACP shopping around to find the right venue and the right plaintiff. So, you know, that, that strategy can be used um, for good or for evil, and, you know, which side is good and which side is evil depends on who's, who's viewing it, but, uh, you know, that, that's been around a while. This and is and a I think one other, one other point is Arizona seems to be especially willing to take on controversial views that they sometimes know are going to be challenged at the courts that are sort of sometimes of questionable legality or, or and, and they're willing to push them to the Supreme Court and they relish this um, and they believe with the current court that they might be able to change uh, precedent. So, so there seems to be um, a sentiment here that may not exist in all other states that um, we're, gonna, we're gonna push this even though we know that um, previous court decisions might not be in sync with what we're doing. This is an open political culture, and in that sense, Arizona does become a crystallization of many of the discontents that are roiling in the, in the rest of the country. You know, the, the, the comparison's been made to, to Kansas territory in the 1850s. You know, the, the Civil War was being fought there before it was the rest of the country. Or Mississippi in the 50s. These, these sort of overwhelming questions that tend to have a focus, a geographical focus. And those are extreme historic examples but you know, we do see that phenomenon in Arizona where uh, what the rest of the country is thinking Arizona is starting to say. Thank you for coming.